Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart, the most listened to internet radio show in the nonprofit sector. Dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to modern day fundraising success, and practical advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books range from successful online fundraising to the use of social media and how to make your nonprofit green. Guests on The Nonprofit Coach are leaders in their field who share tips and trade secrets for nonprofit management and fundraising success. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. This is a live call-in show. Add your voice by calling 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Click on Radio. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of The Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And welcome here to the latest edition of The Nonprofit Coach. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, We have a really, really important show about nonprofit board service uh, and a new book, Nonprofit Board Service for the Genius. Uh, But first, as the announcer mentioned, uh, this is a live call-in show, and you can call in at 347 Three two four thirty eighty. Once we get to our page two experts, you can also join us over in the chat room. Uh, I see some folks over in the chat room. You can ask questions there. Uh, or if you're super shy and you would like to just email me your questions, you can email me at tedhart at tedhart.com. Of course, all of our podcasts are available always free uh, at tedhart.com. As always here on the Nonprofit Coach, we start with page one news. First up here on page one news is drawing your attention to a terrific new report just out by Donor Drive. It's about peer-to-peer fundraising. We've talked about people-to-people fundraising. And of course, our book is still available from Wiley called People-to-People Fundraising. And the state of peer-to-peer fundraising or people-to-people fundraising is very strong. I think you will find uh, this report, uh, again, this report from Donor Drive um, to be really fascinating. Some of the things that uh, that they found the hot trends are fundraising through social continues to grow. Salesforce is making a, a lot of noise in the kind of valuable donor data that they uh, can provide and the focus that they have given to nonprofits. Um, some are finding crowdfunding to be getting suspicious. Uh, and so is that the right way to view this entire trend 
of people-to-people fundraising that we have been uh, talking about here on The Nonprofit Coach. Um, Millennials are tomorrow's nonprofit leaders. Uh, Is storytelling still the thing? Are you guiding your supporters in making a digital ask? And I think one of the the biggest stories here uh, in this uh, really nicely put together, nice infographic type report is fundraising through social continues to grow, but it's multiple touch points uh, and multiple uh, ways that we communicate with people, not just one silver bullet, which I'm sure everybody is looking for that one thing that you need to tell uh, me to do. Uh, but crowdfunding in, in corpus, uh, encompasses both nonprofits and for-profit fundraising for individuals. And there's now starting to get to be this feeling, and we've talked about this on the show, and I predicted this on the show, is that you know people that are out there raising money for themselves, confusing with nonprofit organizations, is making the entire business of crowdfunding suspicious uh, for nonprofits. People might feel more connected to this uh, crowdfunding, but it doesn't mean that they're doing their most good. Uh, and what's the best way for nonprofits to approach this? And I think it is uh, in the uh, avenue of social fundraising, peer-to-peer fundraising, or as we call it, people-to-people fundraising. Um, so get a hold of this uh, report. We've tweeted about it today at Ted Hart, so you can get the link uh, there as well. Um, next up here on the Nonprofit Coach, page one news, um, is to draw attention to the ultimate Facebook ad guide for fundraising events. Uh, this is posted over at johnhayden.com. Uh, really well done, nicely um, uh, sort of breaking things out in terms of how do you capture, how do you nurture, how do you convert, and how do you share, um, giving you some very specific tips on how you can boost your posts and raise uh, attendance at your events. So check it out. Not a long uh, uh, post here. Uh, but uh, John Hayden's usually got some really good stuff, and today I think you'll be very pleased with what he's sharing with you on how you can advertise and promote your fundraising events. Next up here on uh, the Nonprofit Coach, it is that time of the month for us to bring in Gabe Cohen. Gabe Cohen is here for the Guide Star Minute. Gabe, you've got a lot going on, and of course, uh, one of the biggest topics right now for a lot of donors. Uh, is the tragedy and now the double uh, large earthquake in Nepal. Welcome back here to the nonprofit coach, Gabe Cohen. Thanks, Ted. I appreciate it. And, and yeah, you are exactly right. We have uh, had a busy couple of weeks over here at GuideStar. Um, had a lot of media requests from myself and the, the rest of our team here to try to give some advice to the donors. So I thought it would be kind of an interesting exercise if we could take the advice that we've been giving to donors in the wake of the Nepal earthquake and really in the wake of any sort of natural disaster such as the, the Nepal earthquake and, and then extrapolate that for advice for nonprofits as the, they can use to be ready so that they can be well positioned um, in, in times of crisis like this. So well, of course that's begin, really important. Help us understand where this kind of content might be found and the kind of advice that you think is important here. Yeah, absolutely. So we were doing uh, interviews everywhere from CNBC to Fox Business News. Uh, there was just a great piece in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend on how to vet a charity. So these kind of sorts of pieces of advice are just all over the place these days because people want to make sure that their money is going not just to um, good nonprofits, but they want to make sure that they're not going to scams. 
So the, the first thing that we recommend to donors is to research before they give, uh, especially in times of disasters. It can be a little bit too easy to give with your heart and not your head. So we want to make sure that donors are taken advantage of. And what that means from a nonprofit perspective is that they need to prove to donors that the organization can and will continue to make a difference by referencing, and, and a couple ways they can do that is by referencing impact that they've had with similar disasters on their website, on social media, on that, that any outlets that they have, and then also being really transparent with where donors' money is going. And an easy way to do that, as you know, Ted, is to fill out their GuideStar nonprofit profile on the GuideStar Exchange so they can really be clear with donors where their money's going. Of course, we promote that here on the Nonprofit Coach. It's extremely important. We think that uh, nonprofits follow the six points of uh, the six pillars of success for online uh, fundraising. Number one, just to remind everyone, is a well-designed website with strong email out, outbound uh, communication with your donors. And number two uh, is a strong GuideStar strategy. Yeah, and we certainly appreciate that. And the next piece of advice that we've been giving to donors during this time is um, really an easy one for nonprofits to solve, and that's just verifying that a nonprofit is, is a legitimate nonprofit. And going back to what you were just discussing with crowdfunding, it's becoming um, a really a hot topic is, is, is knowing whether or not a nonprofit or an entity is legitimate. And if you are a nonprofit, it's really easy because you can just send donors right to our site and they'll see a big green check mark verifying that you're an IRS, IRS registered nonprofit. And that solves the problem right there. It's tougher if you're a crowdfunding source though. That's something that I'm curious to see what happens over the next couple of years. Yeah, I am as well, and I'll just uh, share another uh, opportunity since we're bringing up Nepal, and that is CAFAmerica.org, where I serve as CEO. You can go to CAF as in Frank, America.org, um, click right on the homepage, and CAF America gives donors an opportunity to give to charities which are fully vetted and have grant agreements uh, with CAF America, so Americans uh, can move money to charities on the ground in Nepal uh, and receive a U.S. tax deduction. Um, the charities that are fully vetted by CAF America and are able to accept donations through CAF America are Child Reach International, Asion Contra de Hombre, uh, International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, The Small World, the Gurkha Welfare Trust, Islamic Relief Canada, Deafway, uh, Asian Resource Foundation, and World Vision. And so uh, being able to give directly to charities that are active on the ground uh, is something that CAF America believes in, and we wholeheartedly support um, all donors making sure that charities are fully vetted. Uh, and in this case, if you're giving money in outside of the U.S. to secure that tax deduction, you do need to work with an intermediary like CAF America. Lots more going on at, at GuideStar. You've got some uh, big initiatives. I want to make sure you've got plenty of time to cover all of your topics today. Yeah, I appreciate it. The other thing that I wanted to get into is something that I announced on your program, I think, in October of last year, and, and that's that GuideStar, working with the D5 Coalition and Green 2.0, launched the first-of-its-kind program to collect diversity data about the nonprofit sector at scale and really about nonprofit organizations individually. And, and that program is a voluntary program that's built into our GuideStar Exchange program so that when nonprofits go to update their GuideStar nonprofit profiles on our site, 
they have the opportunity to fill out diversity information about their staff, their board members, and also about their volunteers. Um, we just launched this in October and we're seeing great participation results and we're getting really close to seeing um, the amount of data that we need to, to start to make some conclusions about the sector, but we're not quite there yet. Uh, we've had over a thousand nonprofits uh, nationwide update diversity information on our site, which is just great, including uh, nine top foundations. And, and really, there's a big chunk of this that's um, centered around uh, environmental advocacy nonprofits and environmental nonprofits. Um, there's been a big push from our partners with D5 and Green 2.0, particularly Green 2.0, who is um, a, a program that's set up to promote diversity, specifically in the environmental sector, to promote this with those types of organizations. So we're seeing great results and we, we really want to make sure that everybody, you know, we're all out to make the world a better place and, and we have to make sure that we're examining ourselves through that process. And one of the ways that you can do that really easily is, is to just uh, take a few minutes to go to www.guidestar.org backslash exchange. Make sure your update is claimed. Gabe, you're, uh, you're breaking up just a little bit. I don't know if you're on an Internet connection uh, calling in or not, but uh, just uh, wind back just a little bit uh, where folks can find this information. Sorry about that, Ted. Is this a little bit better? That is better. Okay, great. Yeah, so the, the nonprofits can go to guidestar.org backslash exchange, and that's where they can claim and update their profile on our site. And uh, in that process, they can find uh, a list of questions that are related to diversity of their board, of their um, employees, and also of their volunteers. Um, so we highly recommend taking uh, the time to do that, and, and pretty soon we're going to have some kind of peer-to-peer -peer evaluation so you can see how you're doing in comparison with other similar organizations, making sure that uh, we are as diverse as we want to be as uh, a sector. That's that's terrific. Well, uh, yet again, uh, more data and information available on GuideStar all comes back to how important it is uh, to have a full GuideStar strategy, which is, of course, uh, I think as, as much as this diversity initiative is extremely important, I think we both would agree the most important thing is to complete the templates uh, fill out the exchange information uh, and make sure that you keep it updated uh, because of the number of donors who rely on GuideStar data. Um, this is a very smart and, of course, the number two pillar in the six pillars of success for online nonprofit organizations. Gabe Cullen, thank you again. We look forward to uh, uh, having you uh, back uh, next month, uh, which will be our last opportunity to talk to you before uh, the summer hiatus here on the Nonprofit Coach. And then, of course, we'll be picking up with a full schedule back in the fall. So, Gabe Cohen, thank you for joining us here on The Nonprofit Coach. Thanks, Ted. And that wraps up uh, page one, and so we are going to race on over to page two experts. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome Susan Schaefer and Bob Wittig here as our page two experts. Susan is a consultant, writer, and speaker. Her practical approach to fundraising and board development has made her a frequent presenter at conferences and in classrooms, including a course she teaches at Johns Hopkins University. Uh, in 2001, Susan founded Resource Partners, which you can find at resourcepartnersonline.com, 
which provides professional, ethical, and collaborative fundraising counsel to nonprofit organizations. Among the books she has edited, the Nonprofit Consulting Playbook, uh, Susan is an active volunteer, uh, having served as president, development chair, and in multiple other leadership roles on nonprofit boards. Uh, she has co-authored um, this terrific book, uh, On Board Service, um, here on the Nonprofit Coach. We're also welcoming Bob Wittig, um, who serves, at, who has been executive director of the Jovid Foundation in Washington, D.C. since 2002. In addition to grant making, he has hosted a monthly lunch club for grantee EDs, a, a executive directors, uh, and a breakfast club for grantee board members. He also helped spearhead the effort to build a co-location of organizations, the WorkplaceDC.org, and the development of a shared database system, HireDC, uh, to be used by small workforce development organizations to track participant achievements and report collective impact. Bob has served on and provided technical assistance to many nonprofit organizations. What's most important uh, for us uh, here today uh, is that we have uh, uh, both uh, Susan and Bob here uh, to introduce us to a terrific book called Nonprofit Board Service for the Genius. So I'm going to start off by thanking you both for being guests here on the show, uh, but also uh, for starting off to make us all feel like geniuses by reading this book. <laughs> Uh, so uh, why don't we go with uh, lady, ladies first. I, I, I'd like to ask Susan if you could just sort of tee this up um, from where did this board, where did this book come from and why was it needed? So, well, thank you, Ted, first of all, for having us. Bob and I are very passionate about this subject, so we really appreciate getting to a chance to connect with your audience. This book came out of a board uh, service that, that – uh, Bob and I took on together. Bob was actually executive director himself at a, a, a local, to us, uh, adult literacy organization. Um, I was actually on the board when we hired Bob, so I'd like to say we, we made at least one smart decision during that time. Um, and I was on the board for about 10 years in total. We, um, I ended up serving in several leadership positions, including board chair, and the board uh, in, on which we worked, went through a number of changes at that point, in particular going from a founding board to a more professional uh, group. So you can imagine um, it was very tumultuous time in many ways, but very successful time as well. So um, miraculously, Bob and I were still talking to each other after that stint was <laughs> over. And uh, because Bob clearly still works in the, the sector as a grant maker, and I do, um, I have as a development officer and consultant. We have continued to talk throughout the years about the importance of board service to nearly everything else that makes nonprofits successful. And we have talked for years about wanting to, to convey to, um, to novices and veterans alike how to be good board members. So we fought for years about how we might do that best. And as you hinted, uh, this genius model, this nonprofit board service for the genius, takes a wink at the dummies model. But um, we think that we utilize that type of format and provide mostly board members but also nonprofit staff with a very succinct but really uh, quite in-depth picture of what it is to be a board member and how to aspire to better things with your board. 
Well, and I think those are all extremely important topics. And Bob, I think um, you know one of the things that that's really terrific about this genius series is you know I, I almost sort of feel like you know the dummy series, which which Susan mentioned, uh, sort of a wink to that, but. You know, the focus of that um, that series, I think, is to sort of water things down to the simplest opportunity, not that people are dummies, but um, to to sort of feel like, you know, even a dummy can do this. Um, but I don't think that's the message of the Genius series. I think um, particularly in your book, um, board membership is not for dummies. Um, no, so yeah. Talk to me about that. No, I think, yeah, absolutely. Our book really is a resource, and so it uh, the, the approach of this whole series of the genius books is that if, you know the, the publisher thinks if you want to learn about something, you're already a genius just for wanting to learn and to really um, ins- inspire that um, wanting to learn more about a particular topic. So for us, this is really meant to be an accessible book that really provides a, a solid foundation for people who want to are thinking about serving on a board who maybe are brand new to board service and maybe not fully understanding their role, or even for veterans who just maybe they're having some bumps or trouble spots uh, on the board or in their board service, it's really meant to be a resource to really help address those uh, whole wide variety of topics that Susan and I believe and from our experience are really critical to successful board service. I'd like to ask you both to start off with, I I think you you start the book in in a very interesting way, um, and that is uh, assessing whether board service is right for you and how to find um, a suitable organization. But I think that works well for nonprofit executives to understand that as well, because not all board members are created equal. Not all board members are suitable <laughs> to all boards. Um, so I think these tools are important for sort of both sides of the ledger. Susan, why, why not, and what are the tools? You are so right, Ted. Um, the book, I'll take one step back just to say that the book is, is somewhat sequential in the sense that it first speaks to an aspiring board member, as you alluded, and, and how you might discern whether or not board membership is for you and how to, to choose a board. And then it goes to preparing for your first meeting, your first year of service, and then to even leadership posts. And to get to your question, the the reason we think that this is a book that um, that speaks to those those facets so well is that um, recruitment becomes a recurring theme through all of those stages. And recruitment, we believe, is something that if boards don't take seriously, and by boards I mean board members as well as staff of nonprofit organizations, um, then really you're making everything else harder for yourself. Um, in terms of having a successful board and a successful nonprofit. So we really hope that this book will will speak to aspiring board members as well as um, nonprofit staff and the board members who recruit the candidates because it's be clear that it's very hard to change existing practices on boards. It can be done, and we talk about it a lot in the book, but it's so much easier to be discerning from the, the start. And in this, the, the case we try to make here is that if both the board members themselves as well as any potential board candidates can come to the table both understanding what is involved and what it takes to make a great board member, then everybody is really in a better place. The board has a candidate that's informed and excited and 
and fits in with the culture, and the candidate themselves comes in knowing exactly what's expected of that person. And what better way to just start a relationship right than for everyone to be on the same page? And I just want, if I can add just a little bit, can I add a little bit to that, if it's okay? Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I, I think that um, it, what really makes our book unique is that it really is from the board board per, uh, members' perspective. So I think what does not get talked about enough when people are thinking about joining a board, I, I say to people, it's like interviewing for a job, really. It's got to be a fit both ways. And I've heard far too often people that join the board and then they find out, oh, I've got to give $2,000 or, oh, I've got to go to X, I've got to do these types of activities. I didn't know that. So the first part of the book, um, actually, we have questions in there that you can ask the executive director about the, the organization. You can ask other board members really to help the individual who's interested in serving on a board, whether it's your first board or you're, or you're finding another board you want to serve on, to make sure you have the right fit. And just to reiterate what Susan said, um, you, know, you, you talk a lot about fundraising in your previous segments. You want to have someone who's connected to the mission right out of the gate because people who are mission connected on your board, I guarantee you, are going to be better fundraisers down the road for you if, than if they're not. So that discernment both ways is really critical. And I always tell nonprofits, it's an honor to have somebody serve on your board. Don't just take anybody to sit in a seat. And from the other side, if it's not a mission that you feel you can be really connected and give time and money and your gifts toward, then it's probably not the organization for you and find one that really stirs up your heart in the matter so you really can you can be part of that organization in a meaningful way. Susan, uh, you both, uh, you and Bob, have, have uh, brought up you know, a very thoughtful process, a deliberative process um, that, that has standards, and if you want that to be in place, that kind of lies i think we you know we're all professionals and now we've been together now for almost a half hour so um so we you know we're, we're best friends now so we can be completely honest um most nonprofits, i think use a very different standard which might be something akin to can you fog up a mirror um before uh you get on the nominating uh standard so uh, <laughs> you know just having a pulse is not enough just saying yes is not right. enough you're you're suggesting uh, a very different process here. How do nonprofits actually make that work? You're so right with that analogy. And um, another one that we use in the book is the idea that uh, in in most cases, if a family member were to come to you and say that, uh, say if you're unemployed and they found a job for you, um, it is it's it's very rare that any of us would jump up and down and just take any old job that a family member suggested or a friend suggested, we would do lots of research to get to that point. And in the same way, uh, we don't recommend what unfortunately becomes the default at many nonprofits, which is that someone's friend on the board goes out and recruits other friends and says, would you please serve on the board with me? And after a fairly short thought process, that person agrees. So to be honest, we do hope that this book serves as one way that um, there can be some kind of greater information sharing before uh, that piece comes to fruition. It's unfortunate that there aren't a whole lot of, of very standard um, board descriptions where, where a potential candidate knows exactly where to go for information uh, when he or she is looking to serve on a board. So we recommend that... As, as nonprofits 
send their own board members into the community to go seek out members that they they recommend this book or something similar to make sure that the the person on the receiving end is doing some due diligence. So we're very clear that it is important to make sure that your board members, potential board members, are informed about the process because, frankly, many just don't know where to look. And on the, the board end of things, um, you know, many of us in the sector do know about being, as you said, Ted, very deliberative about the types of people we'd like on our boards. And, and that goes further than um, kind of the usual diversity of um, job professions and racial and religious and gender and, and that piece, but, but really looking for different perspectives of all kinds. And that's, that can be hard to find if most board members are recruiting their existing circles of friends. So we do recommend doing some brainstorming along with what types of board members do we need and thinking about where might we go to find board members with these particular traits. Maybe it's a chamber of commerce or maybe it's certain religious institutions. Um, you know, any kind of community organization is a, is a perfect starting point, but we recommend that boards really look closely and then follow, um, as you said, a very systematic process, which we've laid out in the book. But, you know, it's not too different from what most of us know to be a series of interviews and, and Q&As, um, but we do lay out a lot of those questions and answers that we think get at the, the meat of what board members and potential board members need to know so that there is a shared set of expectations at the end. I'd like to uh, ask the two of you to, when we come back from a very quick break, I just uh, want to ask the two of you to, to sort of weigh in on a concept that I might refer to as, you know, how to manage successful dating before you decide to get married. So we'll be right back after this break. Introducing the new office. Explore new services that personalize your experience and enjoy the freedom of office when and where you need it with seamless roaming access to your applications, your documents, your personalized settings. It's the office you know and trust. Transformed. Office introduces exciting new features and a gorgeous new look that make it easier for you to get things done. Express your ideas. And stay connected. Have you ever wished you could take back an email you sent to the wrong person? Or have that nagging feeling that your confidential message was forwarded without your consent? Do you sometimes email sensitive data even though you know most email is insecure? And we all have, because we're busy. And because in the world of email, there are no takebacks. Until now, introducing Virtru, the simple way to send and receive secure email with confidence. Virtru is easy to install and use, and it works with your favorite email programs like Gmail, Outlook, Yahoo, MacMail, and more. When you hit the Send Secure button, your email is encrypted before it leaves your computer or smartphone. And even better, you can revoke a message at any time. You decide whether a message can be forwarded by recipients. You can track where your message is forwarded and more. Download Virtue today and start sharing with confidence. 
because everyone deserves digital privacy and security without hassle. And we're back here live with Susan Schaefer and Bob Whitting. Um, what about this this uh, concept of how is it possible to manage a successful dating period with potential board members um, to get to know them and before you bring them on to the board, or do you find out if they're good or qualified after you've elected them? Well, I, it's funny you brought that up because when Susan was sharing, I was thinking we need to talk about dating someone before you marry them. So you, you asked the question I was actually thinking about. Um, I, I think there are ways that you can actually, quote, unquote, date one another before you, um, before you invite somebody to join on a board or before someone uh, thinks that's the board they want to be on. Um, there's a couple of ways that you, a lot of organizations do that I think are, is successful is first having someone serve on a, as a non-board member on a committee. Um, and that gives both the potential board member candidate and the organization a chance to really see if this is a good relationship, if it's going to work. You can see if the person is going to follow through, if you know, test their skills, all, all that kind of stuff. Um, sometimes you have a lot of volunteers at your organization, and there might be a real stellar volunteer who gives 110%. And they, they, they're already kind of proven programmatically for you, and they believe in the mission already because they're there giving their heart and soul to teaching or doing whatever it is your organization does. So there are, there are some of those um, areas that are really great. Um, um, to, you can maybe expedite the dating process a little bit because you can, you can figure out over a period of time whether or not they work well in the committee or not or they're from their volunteer service. We also recommend um, that from the organizational side to – um, take, you know, kind of have a few gates that people have to get, go through. So, for example, if you don't know the person at all and they are, are interested in joining the board, uh, one way to approach it is to say to them, okay, please forward us your resume and a short uh, paragraph of why you're interested in serving on this board and have it to us by Friday. And just give them some kind of deadlines just to see if really what their follow-through is like um, and if and not make it so high barrier that they can't uh, do that, but you kind of do, see if they do that first. And then you have a phone conversation with them, and it gives both the, the board members and the candidate a chance to really have a, a kind of a candid conversation about the organization and uh, what are the expectations um, for board service? You know, again, time, talent, and money that will be expected of the individual. And so I think you just set up a very simple process that when you get to the point where you actually meet face-to-face with the individual, and if they've never been to the organization, give them a tour, have them meet the executive director. Um, you've really done a – it doesn't have to be a, t- a six-month vetting process, but there's enough steps in there that you really each have a good feel of whether or not you really want to, you know, give one one another a diamond ring or something, and actually invite them to join the board. Uh, is, I would I, I would add one more thing. I would add one more thing ahead. to that very good sure. list, which is um, a board commitment form. I think is a great formal way to feel like, oh, maybe it's the the prenuptial agreement. If we're going to take this metaphor uh, <laughs> a step further, um, and and many organizations do have those kinds of forms, and they have their board members sign them every year. Um, and if you're not familiar with them, it's really just a simple page or two of expectations around the kinds of things Bob listed, time, money, um, really even some basic etiquette that will treat each other with respect, those kinds of things. But when you show that to someone at the outset and get their reaction to it, it gives them a quick idea of what specifically is expected of them, and and it allows them to say, and you're giving them the chance to say, 
you know, maybe this is not for me. I didn't realize you required quite so much of my time or um, quite so much of my financial resources. And um, as Bob and I say, I think repeatedly in the book, um, when you hear from, if, as a candidate, if you hear from a board uh, official, say, when you ask how, what's expected of me on this board, if someone says not much, that's probably not a board you want to join. <laughs> so the board commitment form is a way of formalizing all of the things that a board expects and, and starts the dialogue during that dating process um, before it needs to be signed on the dotted line. Well, and I want to ask the two of you to sort of uh, weigh in on um, the these issues of of commitment and understanding commitment because I think a lot of nonprofit organizations um, feel that they're more in a position of trying to talk someone into joining the board as opposed to guarding against not having the right person on the board. And one of the, the things I've spoken about often on this show that I think is apropos to our discussion today is something that I uh, refer to as the strategic vacancy. In other words, you don't have to fill every seat. If you don't have the right person, just filling it with someone who you can convince to say yes is is probably not the best move for your organization. I would totally agree with that because I think um, if you have a if you just invite people on as you were saying and you just just start you've come across as just take wanting to take anybody you create a culture on the board of potentially just not a lot of people giving a lot of effort at all and then if you do get a fabulous person that joins the board and is all gun ho they get on this board and they 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 think it's just a board of people who really there's nothing really happening on the board so they're going to be the think, first ones to resign. Exactly. I mean, I think that that recruitment contributes to the culture of the board, which we talk about also, which is something that's not spoken about a lot in, in, the, in the sector of what is your culture on your board? Because, you know, is there a culture of philanthropy? Is there a culture of expectations set out for people? And are, are they held accountable? And people, you're right, a good person comes on the board and they're excited. And if they're on a board with a bunch of other doers, they're going to be much more willing to be uh, active and contribute and you and put more energy in which is which is what you want uh, conversely if you're stagnant you know Susan and I always say go back up the pipeline you're probably not recruiting the right people but just if you go out and change your recruitment process and you don't change the culture on your board you you still got to catch 22 cuz you're right the person I think will resign they'll they'll say this isn't the board for me <clears throat> I know Susan do you have anything else to add to that I think you're exactly right, and and one of the things that we do uh, try to focus on with some specificity in the book is the the process that that Bob is describing, because we know that if you ha if you feel like you look around the room and your board is currently made up of people who maybe you have some buyer's remorse about, uh, maybe these are people who are not living up to the expectations you had for them, or maybe they didn't know the expectations um, until it was too late. Um, it can be a very difficult process to try to, to clean house. So we do try to provide some language in the book around how you might go about having conversations with those folks that might give them a second or third chance and what tools you can use to spark those conversations and, and even the kind of language that you might use to gently help someone off of the board. Um, I, I, I'm a strong believer that the reality is when you get to the point that you are starting to raise the bar for your board members and there are certain people who just are not moving along with you, 
those people often want to leave the board as much as you want them to leave. And Wait, the Susan, you have is- just brought up such an important topic because I, I think we, a lot of board um, or staff members of nonprofit organizations are so focused on sort of, you know, don't leave, don't leave, and we need you, and, um, you know, 20 years of service on the board, and they don't give people a comfortable way, very dedicated people, a comfortable way to say goodbye. You're exactly right. And in my experience, those people are are usually very well-meaning. They may even be donors and, and major donors at that. So the last thing you want to do is have them leave and and leave some bad feelings behind. So we're, we focus quite a bit in the book and, and in our own discussions now with boards about how you can help those people leave the board in a way that benefits everyone. And some, I think in many cases, it's just a matter of having some one-on-one conversations and saying to this person, you know, we've noticed that your attendance isn't what it used to be and the board is changing and, and really giving them the opportunity to to leave on their own volition by simply saying, you know, is this a point for you where you feel like the, the work you've done on the board maybe has, has taken its logical extension and, and maybe it's time for you, for us to find a new place for you in the organization. And, you know, I think that's part of the nice piece of this is that you can often find a place, um, just as Bob mentioned earlier, that you can have board members serve as volunteers or committee members before they serve on the board. Those kinds of um, similar positions can be terrific for someone who is exiting the board so that they don't feel like you're just kicking them to the curb and then you're finished with them. You want to make sure there's some plan to keep them involved. And oftentimes that can be a terrific bridge to find someone someone's new passion, and maybe it's during a new phase in their lives where they they may have a different um, amount of time or, or even money available to help the organization. So there's, there's many approaches there, but we're big believers in trying to make sure there's a process in place that is constantly evaluating who is currently a good board member as opposed to someone who may have been a great board member five years ago when he or she came on the board. Susan, I think you I just brought us to to uh, uh, a very important place, and Bob, we'll come right back to you. We're just going to take a, a very quick uh, reminder notice, 30 seconds, so we're not going to be gone very long. When we come back, though, I wanted to ask the two of you to sort of weigh in on uh, what I would refer to as sort of you know, the elephant sitting in the middle of the room, and that is everything that you've just been talking about, the role of the board chair, if you've got a good one or a bad one, how do you make all of this work? And we're going to be right back. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. And we're back here with Susan Schaefer and uh, Bob Whitting uh, and their really terrific book um, about nonprofit board service uh, for the genius available over on Amazon. Uh, so this notion of, you know, 800-pound gorilla, you know, elephant in the middle of the room, <laughs> board chair, board chair, how can all this happen if you don't have a good board chair? Um, what's the role of the board chair? 
Well, I just wanted to add, uh, just to pick up a little bit what Susan, Susan was saying, but it also ties into the board chair. I was, in terms of asking people or to leave to step off of the board, I know of an organization that every year the executive director and the chair get together, and they really take an inventory of the the board, each board member, and they, they look at the board commitment form, and they also they also have a separate document, which is like a fundraising plan that uh, each board member has and they commit to, which is a much more detailed, um, uh, details much more what they're going to do as an individual fundraising-wise for the organization. And if, if the ED feels this individual is not working out or the board chair, um, the board chair takes the lead to, you know, as Susan was saying, to not in a mean way, but just to invite that person maybe to a different role on the board or in the organization, but to leave the board for whatever reason is not a good fit. And they're very intentional about that. So this board has taken the organization from a very small, this process, so they've always had a very solid board with the ED and the board chair being very um, very committed and working together in a true partnership. This organization has grown leaps and bounds the past uh, five to ten years because of that, the ability of the ED and the board chair to actually work together. But interestingly enough, the same organization at one point, they did have a board chair that didn't work out. And the ED told me she, that she felt she lost like a year and a half of just effort because the board, it, everything got kind of stagnant because she didn't, yeah. she couldn't tap into the board like she felt she needed to. So to your mm -hmm. point, the chair is, is an essential piece. Like I always felt the board chair needed to kind of have my back and I could call as almost like a touchstone to call them and say, this isn't working. What do you yeah. think? It was a true partnership. And I think when you have that, the organization has a much better chance of having an engaged board and if you every nonprofit goes through hard times and if you go through those hard times you can weather them much better if you have that relationship in place and what if you don't though i mean what what uh, what are the alternatives what if the person who becomes board chair just happened to be next in line uh there was no evaluation of of you know skill set it was just you know next time um, and now you've got someone who is, does not have your back, does not uh, engage in the way that you just described, which I think we all would agree is a, a very healthy and productive relationship. Not everybody has that. It's so true, and um, this is this is probably a longer answer than we, we could have spent a whole hour probably talking about this topic alone. Um, in the book, we go over a couple of different scenarios there, and I think the bottom line, when a board chair isn't working out, I think the the most important piece is to have a working core of other other folks who are very engaged. And you know, we like to say probably more than almost any other committee, the the prevalence um, of a, a governance committee or some other board board focused committee can be very helpful in that case because if you've got a governance chair who sees the the say bad blood between the ED and the um, board chair or a board chair who simply is checked out for a period of time, I think that governance chair can serve a similar role as the one we just described when you have individual um, kind of line board members who are not living up to their commitments. And sometimes those discussions are difficult, um, but I would say that you can preempt a lot of these problems by going through the same kind of due diligence that we described earlier for board members in general. So that is to say, every board member that comes on the board should have an expectation of leadership at some point. 
and that can be part of the board commitments. It could be part of ongoing conversations, and and that allows often for a very um, diligent process of placing officers because we all know that feeling. If there's only one person, sometimes boards are lucky to have one person willing to step into a leadership role, you really are stuck. But, boy, if you start priming every person who steps on your board to be an, an officer or a committee chair, then suddenly there are many more options. And to put yourself and your organization in that position where you have lots of good choices is really the place you want to be. So we really make, uh, maybe more than anything in this book, make an emphasis on every board member can and should be a leader. And and frankly, we take it so far to the point where we say that even if you're, you don't have an officer or a chair title, that you can you can and should be taking leadership on specific roles uh, or issues. And in that case, again, it's a trial run for um, for the peers on the board to see who truly is a good leader and someone um, able to eventually sit in that chair role. And I would just add, I think one of the one of the debates or issues that always come up would be: should you have term limits or not have term limits? And I think there's this whole notion, there's one argument that's made, well, the board, you know, someone should just be asked to leave off, and that doesn't, uh, doesn't always happen. So sometimes having these board terms in place is a way to get somebody to kind of put the momentum that somebody has served a year or two years as board chair. Maybe it didn't work out, unfortunately, so you move um, to have, have them move into another role in the organization, but they roll off. I mean, but you still want to have a culture on the board. It goes back to that culture where the board chair, that that role is really understood, it's valued, and it's a true leadership position, and they're engaged. Being a board chair, take, a good board chair takes a lot of work. And uh, to Susan's point, if you haven't been thoughtful to develop a, a leadership pipeline for the organization, uh, and have several leaders who can step up to uh, to serve as a chair or other officer positions. You really have a you have a problem. I would say chair and treasurer. Not that they're all not important, but those two in particular are key. And if you don't have people lined up to be in those roles, you really leave the organization in a lurch. I think because then the the staff is not getting the support that they need, and then I don't think the board is doing its true governance due diligence that they need to be doing to make sure that the organization is having its mission impact. We do have an email question that just came in from Robin in Chicago, and she says that her board chair has told her that an adversarial relationship uh, between the two of them is healthier for governance. Wow, I'm speechless on that one. <laughs> Um, I've not heard that before. Have you, Bob? No, I haven't either. No, I have not. Um, um, I wow. would, you know, I, I can only attest to the fact that, um, you know, Bob and I had a very good working relationship, and I'd say while we certainly faced challenges, our board turned around very quickly on many fronts, undertook its first strategic plan. You know, all of these kinds of issues take a lot of time and personal um personal, often volunteer effort. Let's face it, there are only so many hours even an executive director has in a day. So much of this time is is, is really above and beyond. So, boy, I, it, it really I, I does I want to say I, there, is, there is a strain of thought, and, and I feel for Robin, I really do, um, but mm-hmm. uh, there is a strain of thought out there that uh, the board chair should should be one of the biggest critics um, so that they don't get too comfortable mm-hmm. 
um, with the person, CEO, executive director, president, whoever that the, the top uh, administrative uh, officer might be. I think that there is a fine line here because on the one hand, you're all tied together. You should Everyone should be tied together by the mission. That is your top utmost operating principle. You're there for a mission to serve clients. Whatever your mission is, that's your guiding principle. And I think the board has a responsibility to the public at large because of this nonprofit status that was that's bestowed on them to make sure that there is a mission impact and that programs are being delivered that meet the mission as you told the government and everybody else that you would be doing. So there's that piece that's really important. And I would say it's not so much adversarial as account- accountable and that's very different. Holding someone accountable is, is very different than having an, a gotcha kind of a mentality because that you, who can work under that? So I, right. we, I, we really try to stress about creating a partnership and so that the dance becomes you also need to partner with the staff because board members are, I like to say, are part-time volunteers managing a full-time operation. And the reality of it is is that the staff knows everything because the board isn't there all the time, right? So you have to you have to have a, a a relationship of trust and transparency so you can work together because there's a lot to do together, but there is that old, there is that piece of accountability that I think goes both ways. The staff has to be able to hold the board accountable as well. So I the word adversarial just concerns me because I that would make me feel that there's not good there potentially is not good communication and potentially not sufficient trust that you can really um, do what you need to do to make sure the mission is really uh, so what, being delivered Susan, as what, upon. What should Robin do? What, what should Robin do with this? I'd see if there's you know, some boards are are very good at undertaking an internal process. Um, you know, if there is an adversarial, if the, the adversarial relationship truly does exist. There may be someone internally, a veteran board member maybe, who can bring the the two parties together and and serve as almost an internal mediator to have this discussion. Um, you know that that I think it's possible that the the impetus of this um, conversation was that uh, you certainly don't want a board chair that rubber stamps um, uh, an ED's opinions or or processes. And yet, um, you know, you, you do need to find a way to support each other, as Bob was saying. So sometimes there is kind of a, a sage um, board veteran who can help bring the two together and and help them see the, the idea that while maybe if there is some um, inherent personality conflict, if that even exists in this case, that there is a, a professionalism needed um, among the two. Um, and, and other organizations, we've probably all um, coming in touch with some of them, do go to outside help to, um, to coaches um, especially who specialize in bridging that gap between EDs and, and board chairs. I would just Robin, add to there might be, I mean, being in Chicago, I know, for example, like there's organizations like Taproot, uh, Susan was alluding to organizations that do board development. So I don't know if, I don't know the size of Robin's organization, if it's, you know, if they can afford it, but there are um, capacity building uh, organizations. That's what they do. And one of them is board development. So maybe if, if she's describing it as, as adversarial, then bringing in more of an objective person, because I would guess, and again, not knowing all the facts, 
that if there's an adversarial relationship, that there probably is a board culture that's not very, um, it's a little dysfunctional as well. So bringing in somebody that, or a group of people that can be like a, almost like a mediator between them to really kind of work through the, the issue. Another suggestion would be um, you can go to a foundation if you have a trusted uh, program officer that you know, maybe they've been giving grants to the organization and you, they might have uh, pots of money for capacity building. And again, for, to Susan's point, they might give you money uh, to do some board development. Um, so I think there's ways to, um, to work through it, but it takes time for that to change, you know, for it to change. But I think it might need more of a mediation than maybe she can do on her own with the, with the board yeah. chair, possibly. And I hope we've been very helpful to you, Robin. We've only got four minutes left, so I'm going to ask each of you to take about two minutes um, to give your summary of what you'd like the takeaways to be and then also make sure that my audience knows how uh, to reach you, and of course, we'll start with ladies first. Susan, <laughs> thank you, Ted. Um, this is—it's always a thrill to talk about board service because it's so central to what our organizations do. And you know, the the, the rationale for this um, resource that Bob and I have put together is is one of empowering really all stakeholders in nonprofit um, excellence. So we hope that it serves as a resource for board members themselves to self-educate in moments where they feel underprepared or they feel like they may be a lone wolf on a certain issue, and, and really to also empower um, staff, nonprofit staff, to empower their boards. So, so many staff members feel alone against their boards sometimes, and um, you know, we're, we're seeing some boards already use um, this book as a, a book club type of of peace where they read a particular chapter or two and come together to talk about it. So we really hope it starts um, a, a kind of a wave of, of empowerment where boards don't feel like they need to, to sit around and flounder in the um, status quo, but they can push themselves to the next level um, in much of their own power. Good summer reading then, for all board members. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be good. Yeah, take it to the beach with you. Um, I would just add just really quickly that I, I just really believe that boards are very underutilized and that they can they can really be cultivated more to, to really help the organization. I think they're a they have the potential that's just really untapped. So the takeaway that I would say from just our conversation today would be that mission really matters and to always keep that as the focus. I think if I'm working with a board right now that's having some just some challenges with communication and we keep going back between board and staff and we keep going back to that central reason why they're there and I can already see the conversation shifting with them because the focus is on the mission. That's why you're all there. That's the heart of it. So as much as you can, always keep that at the um, at the forefront. And then I would say that um, if you're passing around a cup of straws and the person who gets the short straw is the board chair or the treasurer, that you need to really think about how you're cultivating leadership on the board so that you really have a pipeline that can really be, that can step up and provide the leadership uh, that's really needed on the board to help make it functional and partner with, with the staff. And then I'll just put a plug in and just say we do have a website. The book is on Amazon, but we also have a website called nonprofitboardgenius.com that's got some more information about what's in the book and some blogs and that kind of stuff that um, people could go to as well. Terrific content today. We cannot thank you enough. Susan Schaefer, Bob Whitting, uh, the book is uh, called The Nonprofit Board Service 
for the genius, and I love the fact that you are helping us all feel like geniuses. Please come back soon. <laughs> Continue your great work uh, in the marketplace. Everyone, that is our show. Uh, don't forget to go to tedhart.com. You can listen free to all of our podcasts. You've been listening to the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Coach. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.